Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Robert Geniak. Robert is the best-selling author of Rich is a State of Mind and a highly sought-after speaker at financial industry seminars and client events currently based in Oakville, Ontario. With an entertaining yet direct speaking style, Robert offers a lighthearted look at financial planning with the serious message of personal responsibility. Audiences love his dynamic and engaging presentations, which challenge them to see things from a different perspective. Robert has been a student of the financial planning process for almost two decades. His goal is to passionately encourage people to take control of their finances in order to have a richly imagined future. In my interview with Robert, we discuss pitfalls to avoid when investing in real estate, the downsizing trend, and achieving mortgage-free financial freedom. Without further ado, here's my interview with Robert Geniak. Hi, Robert. How are you doing today? Pleasure to be chatting with you, Sean. I'm doing great. Thank you. Wonderful to hear. Looking forward to an interesting conversation on real estate and personal finance as well as your book today. Well, I hope we'll put on an entertaining show for your listeners. Great. Well, let's get started. Why did you write Rich is a State of Mind? And what is it about? And who is it for? So Rich is a State of Mind is a novel about personal finance is seen through the eyes of a slightly dysfunctional Canadian family. And I have to admit, Sean, I wrote the book by accident. I was never intending to write a book. I was trying to help a friend of mine who's financial advisor in Waterloo create a marketing brochure. And the short story that was supposed to be part of the brochure morphed into the book. And it's currently in its 18th printing, closing in on 50,000 copies sold. But I don't think Dan Brown and J.K. Rowling are losing sleep over my book sales. So the book itself is a look at 13 months inside the heart of a slightly dysfunctional Canadian family across a generation. Four central characters, Richard, who's the mentor, niece and nephew, James and Joyce, 20-somethings, trying to come to grips with money, investing, insurance, goal setting. What about the future? Why won't it take care of itself? And Richard's best friend, John, who is a certified financial professional who helps guide them through the process of learning these life lessons about money. Who is it for? I'd like to think anybody who wants to get a better grounding in personal financial education or perhaps simply read the story of a fairly interesting Canadian family trying to come to grips with what both you, Sean, and I come to grips with all the time. What do we do about money? Why is it so emotional? Why do we need to care? And more importantly, are there anything better that we can be doing about it other than obsessing about it at 2.30 in the morning? Well, sounds like a very interesting book and I've read it myself and it was a great read. So I certainly recommend that the listeners check it out. And I like how you went the unconventional route of writing it as a story rather than just sharing your thoughts in chapter format, because I found it a lot easier to digest and 
if you're not a personal finance nerd like me, then I certainly think that it's an easier read. And I guess that's kind of what you had in mind when writing the book. I mean, did you consider writing it in the typical format where you just share your thoughts and opinions? What kind of encouraged you to write it in the story format that you ended up going with, Robert? Well, first off, Sean, I appreciate the feedback on the book. That that makes me very, very happy. And in terms of its format, I didn't want to create another seven steps to X or the 10 steps to Y and make it read like a high school or university textbook. I think that's what drove so many of us away from the concept of furthering our education is, is that I didn't want a textbook. And if I could create, hopefully, an interesting story about a Canadian family, readers would engage with the book and go, hey, I had that question, that's, that's me, or, or that's my sister-in-law, or that's my brother. These are the questions that I think try to keep people turning the page to move on and then break the, the book down into composite chunks of here's one small concept at a time before we move on to the next topic. And if it keeps readers reading and keeps a reader like yourself engaged, then I'd, I'd like to think I've done a pretty good job at getting that message across. Well, that's great. And do you touch in on real estate and mortgages in the books? Perhaps you could just talk a bit about that. I touch upon it briefly, and because when you're trying to grasp the concept of personal finances, if you try to include every single topic, your book would be 587 pages long and nobody would read it at all. So it is touched upon there in terms of home ownership and some dealings with credit, the pros and cons of credit, how credit and interest rates can affect how we view our finances and how sometimes we get off track and some ways in terms of how we can deal with that. Real estate's interesting. And I know you kind of focus on it as your profession. And for me, it's one of those things, it's part of a bigger picture. I think everybody has a slight interest in real estate. If for no other reason, then we need a place to live. And whether that place is something we rent or something we own, we still like to have a roof over our heads. And I think in, I know you're in the GTA, Sean, I'm kind of just outside the GTA. And every time we open the newspaper, open a magazine, listen to a podcast, read a blog, it's all about real estate, real estate, real estate. And I think it's one of the things that when I have the opportunity to travel a bit with my work and people aren't so obsessed about real estate outside of the major centers, places like Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, but everybody has a little bit of an interest in it because everybody has a real estate story. Great. And we'll definitely touch on real estate later on in a couple questions from now, but that's a perfect preview of that questions. Moving right along, Robert, what do you see as the potential problems or pitfalls for people with personal finances today? From reading the mainstream media, it seems to always talk about consumer debt, but I'd be interested to hear your perspective on this. Well, certainly consumer debt is an issue, and it's hard not to read any article recently on personal finance that isn't talking about insolvencies, bankruptcies, the average Canadian owes a dollar. 77 for every dollar of income. And in in some ways, it can sound like a a pretty depressing situation. And sure, I, I think for some people have created a bit of a problem for themselves. Sometimes those problems are manageable. Sometimes the problems aren't manageable. And if there's a big issue kind of that I wrap right around it is I think there are three big issues. We buy too much house. We buy too much car. We don't save enough money. 
those would be the three basic tenets, I, I think, for a lot of us as Canadians in terms of approaches to personal finance. And with that as a starting point, the book tries to deal with that. And some of the work that I do speaking across the country to both financial professionals and their clients, if I was going to leave them with one overarching message, it would be this. Social media is not the real world. And so what we see on Instagram accounts and Facebook accounts and sometimes Twitter accounts are everybody's picture of their best day all the time. And so while the snapshots look great from Cancun or sitting beside the shiny new car or the keys to the new house they just bought, what's missing is the shot of them lying awake, terrified at 2.30 in the morning because they have a visa bill that's due on Friday and they have no way to pay it. That picture, unfortunately, doesn't make it into our Instagram feed. And so that we tend to think everybody is doing amazing all the time. And I really don't think that's the case. And I'd be interested in your perspective on that. Yeah, definitely. And that's interesting that you brought that up. I actually have a whole section in my book about that, just the effects of social media. It's kind of a newer phenomenon. When I was younger, social media wasn't really around. When I, even when I was in high school, it wasn't really a big thing. It's only in the last decade or so that the so-called Instagram effect has changed people's perspective. And I just think that it's put a lot of pressure on people to quote unquote keep up with the Joneses even more than before because not only are you seeing your neighbor's new car next door and you're seeing all that on social media as well when you check your phone. I definitely think as you met, mentioned that you need to keep that in perspective that people aren't going to be sharing their worst moments. It's only the best moments like when they go on the nice trips and when they get the keys to their new car or their new house. As long as you keep that in perspective, that's fine, but don't get too wrapped up and consume with it because if you do, then it can pressure you and you can feel pressured to live a lifestyle that's not realistic because if you're hoping for those great moments 24-7, then I, I really don't think that's realistic and it's probably going to land you in a lot of debt. Well, I think sometimes we all suffer from it and and sure, I you know, I'm not immune to this myself, the, the whole concept of fear of missing out. It's like, oh man, everybody else is doing cool stuff. Why am I not doing cool stuff? Well, I'm not doing cool stuff because my plan is probably different than their plan and that's okay. But when we succumb to that, oh my God, everybody is doing so well. Why am I not doing well? We can get into a very self-defeating attitude and make ourselves feel badly about something that we shouldn't feel badly about at all. There's one line in the book I probably get more feedback about than any other, Sean, and it's this. Don't spend money you don't have to buy crap you don't need to impress people you don't know. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. I certainly agree with that, but I guess people lose sight of that. So perhaps they should have that as a quote on their fridge to remind themselves every day. That might be helpful. I don't know. <laughs> it, a, it would be incredibly flattering. If, if it works for them, that's great. Recently, I, I had a chance to be down in Windsor, Ontario with my dad, and we were at the bank, and he wanted something out of the safety deposit box. And I pulled the documents from the house that my mom and dad bought just after they got married. It's the house I was raised in. My father still lives there. They've owned the house for over 50 years. They paid less for the house than I paid for the car that my wife and I bought in August. 
And trust me, I, we didn't buy any kind of fancy car. <laughs> we, we bought a very reliable point A to point B. It's going to be great for us. But they paid less for the house than that car. And I remember having the discussion with my dad who told me they didn't sleep for the first three nights they lived in the house because they were convinced they'd never be able to pay for it. Oh my goodness. Certainly times have changed a lot since then. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, let's switch gears for a moment and talk about real estate. I know we touched on it earlier, but could you tell me, are you a fan of real estate and what are some pitfalls to avoid? I'm certainly a fan. Certainly no kind of real estate mogul. I don't own any rental properties or investment condos or anything like that. I've owned three houses in my life. One I owned for two years in Ottawa back in the early 80s, which was kind of a mistake. And I'll explain, not a mistake to buy the house. It was a mistake to buy the house before I figured out that I wasn't settled enough and was going to be staying in Ottawa. And the move that entailed 18 months after I bought the house caused me to sell the house. There's one of the pitfalls is before you make that decision, I'd like to think you've sorted out am I going to be here a while? Because if you're only going to be in any physical location for 18 to 24 months, should you really buy a house there? My gut tells me no. Other people would say yes. It, it's really a personal thing. The second house I owned was in Aurora, Ontario. The house was bought in 1988. And if they could give you a year, which is the worst year absolutely to buy a house in the province of Ontario, it's 1988. Because by 1996, the house was worth probably 20% less than when we bought the house. By the time we had to sell the house in 2004 because of a move, yeah, it was back up above where we bought it. But I think the, the average investment return over that period for the house was about 1.8%. So not exactly a, a stellar real estate move, but it served its purpose. It wasn't an investment. It was a house which became a home and we built equity in the house and, and all of that was great. But people would go, well, you didn't make a very good move. Well, we made the right move at the time, given the situation. But funny enough, within five years of selling that house in Aurora, it had appreciated about another 38% in the next five years. As you know, with any of this stuff, Sean, timing is a big issue. And the home that I'm living in now, I didn't buy. It was one of those situations that I found out when you marry a person, they'd like you to live with them. So I moved into the townhouse that is my, well, it's our townhouse now, but was my wife's townhouse when I moved into it. And great place to live. And she bought it because she needed a place to live. And she bought it in a location which made sense for her teenage son at the time to have great access to jobs and to school for all of the part-time work that got him through high school and university. So at the end of the day, yes, I'm a fan. Don't buy a house before you're settled in one location. And realize that the house you buy may not appreciate at 28% a year for the next 10 years. Great advice. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom of real estate over the years. So continuing on with our topic of real estate, what do you make of the downsizing trend? And are you a fan? I mean, I can speak from personal experience. It, it seems like from reading the mainstream media, baby boomers would all be downsizing at once. But I can say from personal experience, my mother has downsized, but my father hasn't downsized. And the main reason is he loves his neighborhood and there's just not really a lot of affordable options for downsizing. But I'd be interested to hear your perspective on this, Robert. Well, downsizing is a trend is interesting. And, and I'm of a certain age. I'm happy with I'm 58 years old. 
do I think I'll be working into my mid 60s into my 70s? Sure, I love what I do. There's there's no obligation to stop doing it, but do we need the size of place that we currently have is kind of an ongoing discussion between Nadine and I. I would like to think at some point we will downsize. If you downsize and stay in a similar area, then the question is, you've changed your space, but did you change your financial obligation? Because I think what everybody, when they think of downsizing, they think of selling a house in a big city and moving to the country. And it's, I'm going to sell my house for a large amount of money. I'm going to get the same house for half the amount or less and put the rest of it in the bank and help fund my retirement. And depending on where you move to, sure. That's doable. My question for the people who want to do that is what happens for those of you who have great access to medical facilities, entertainment facilities, sporting facilities, all the stuff that people have generally around a major urban center when you make the move to 100 kilometers away from the urban center? And if that new location suits your lifestyle, perfect. It's going to work. But if it doesn't suit your lifestyle, if you like all the things that an urban center affords, why would you move 200 kilometers away from it to put some money in the bank when you downsize to a smaller house or to a condo or to whatever that next real estate move is for you? The other compounding factor, Sean, is what happens now when you need access to things like medical care, medical specialists who are all clustered around the urban center and you're 200 kilometers away? How do you make the the drive in on a day like we had yesterday with freezing rain and snow to make that 200 kilometer commute for medical appointments? That's when I think people need to really think out how do you make that move Now, that doesn't mean there aren't locations outside of urban centers that have great medical care. There's many of them. It's a matter of you've got to really choose wisely when you're making that move. It's not just about the money and the finance part of it. It's got to be about the rest of your life. Those are some great points that you raised, Robert. And Certainly touching on the money and finance point, something that I wanted to bring up as well. I mean, people think, oh, I'll just sell my house in the big city and move to a smaller town and be able to buy a house for half of the, the price or even less. Something else to consider is if you're moving to somewhere outside the city, you might end up spending more on all the other costs of living. For example, commuting costs because you have to drive everywhere instead of being within walking distance. And another big one on top of that is that food is a major expense for people. And if you move to a smaller town, the prices at the supermarket are probably going to be more. The prices at the restaurants are probably going to be more. Certainly before you make the move, just consider all the other costs of living because it's not just the real estate costs that matter. You may be saving money by selling your property, but if all your other costs are higher as well as you're farther away from a medical facility, then it might not necessarily make sense. Just be sure to figure that out in advance because it can be costly to downsize and then change your mind later on and try to buy into the same real estate market. That can definitely set you back far financially. One of the other things to consider, Sean, and I see this, my dad lives in Windsor, Ontario, and the entire Essex County region Kingsville, Leamington, Amherstburg, LaSalle, Windsor, Tecumseh 
is going through a bit of a renaissance, for lack of a better word, and home prices there have climbed substantially in the last three to four years. Why? Because of an influx of people from the GTA area of Toronto in the Golden Horseshoe up here who are doing the downsizing thing and they're making the move to that area. Well, when you make the move to that area and people wanting to buy in or outstripping the supply, well, I don't think you have to be an economic genius to figure out what happens. Prices go up and that's what's happening. Now, it's spurring a lot of good things in that area as well in terms of the environment's changing to add support for medical services, entertainment options, restaurants are, are opening up. Why? Because they've got to serve people who have a little bit of extra income because they made the move from a high home price area to a lower home, I won't say low, but lower home price area, and they have some disposable income. So these are all good things for that region, but I think people who, who just assume, well, I'll move there and double my money, really are, are going to have to pay attention to what's happening in the economic area that they want to move to. Great advice, as always. Robert, you've recently paid off your mortgage. We did. Yes, congratulations. So Thank you. Can, you. can you tell me why did you pay it off and how did it make you feel? And I'll just toss another question out there. Did you have some sort of mortgage burning party similar to me? It was more of a mortgage shredding party than, a, than I'll say burning. But it was one of the things that we decided as a couple to go ahead and pay off the house. It was something that I wanted to do pretty much since the point where we became a couple, because I think we'll both be, and I'm doing little air quotes here that you can't see, Sean, retired within the next two to three years, whatever retirement actually means. Now, for her, she's a school teacher. The ability to retire is there and didn't want to look at retirement with debt. Now, that doesn't mean I absolutely think everybody should retire with no debt. Uh, sure, it's, I think it's a great idea if you can manage that with your own personal finances. But for us, it was a goal that we had had for quite a while in order to do that. And knowing that retirement was coming up in the next couple of years, or at least certainly changes, it was something that we worked pretty hard at over the last five years to make that happen. And yes, there are personal finance experts who are way smarter than me who would have said, you should have left the money invested. Your mortgage was at like 2.2% and you took money out of, of an investment that you could have earned five, six, 7% on. And at the end of the day, I didn't really care because the first night we spent in the house mortgage-free was a pretty fun night. And I think it added a lot of flexibility to some of the things we're considering for the future not having a mortgage payment out there. And quite frankly, it made us feel good. And at the end of the day, the whole point of doing smart things with your money is to make you feel good. Mathematically, should we have paid it off? I don't know. Personally, emotionally, should we have paid it off? Absolutely. No, I love the way that you framed it. And it's similar to myself. I mean, people will argue till the cows come home that I should have invested my money instead of paying off my mortgage earlier. But by paying off my mortgage 
early. I was able to travel guilt-free as well as start my own business as a mortgage broker. I wouldn't have felt comfortable quitting my full-time job to start my own business if I had a massive mortgage. Certainly, one could argue that you could make more off investments, but it's as you said, it's not just a, a dollars and cents argument. It's what helps you sleep better at night. And if not having a massive mortgage to your name helps you sleep better at night, then I certainly think that there's a lot of merit to be had with paying off your mortgage early. And keep in mind, Sean, it's not that we weren't sleeping at night, but it was it was one of those issues that when you look at the budget, you, you look at the mortgage payment, there's a big chunk of the budget that's allocated to that. Now that chunk isn't in the budget anymore. Does that give us some flexibility to travel? We both like to travel. You've traveled it yourself as part of that process. What I think it does is it just gives you some options. And at the end of the day, the money that isn't going towards mortgage payments can certainly be invested. It can be used for the generation of life experiences. It can be used to help our son who's doing his master's degree in environmental science. Trust me, there's no shortage of things to do with what was once the mortgage payment. But I I do think it's kind of a cool thing to say, hey, we've got no mortgage payment. What do we do next? Great. And on that note, I'd just like to say it's been wonderful having you on the show today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I've got a couple of things on the go. So I I speak to groups and organizations about personal finance, and the listener can find out more by taking a look at robertgeniac.com. So basically my name, R-O-B-E-R-T-G-I-G-N-A-C.com. It's got a link to the books website. If somebody wants to drop me an email, ask me a question, realizing, of course, I'm not an expert in anything, I would be happy to try to help. I host a podcast called Money, Motivation, and More, and I'm the host of a personal finance TV show based out of Windsor, Ontario, where my dad lives, because it gives me a reason to go down and visit him every couple of months. Not that I needed a reason, but I just like to do that, and it gives him a kick to see me on TV. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, co-workers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at sean, that's S-E-A-N, at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.